0: Warren Buffett buying or selling. Motley Fool Money starts now.
1: Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money.
2: The best thing. Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool
0: Money. It's the Motley Fool Money radio show. I'm Dylan Lewis. Joining me in the studio, Motley Fool senior analysts Matt Argersinger and Jason Moser. Gentlemen, great to have you both here. We've got a look at what Warren Buffett's been up to, the complicated world of carbon credits, and of course, stocks on our radar. But we are kicking off today looking at the big macro. Matt, this week,
3: we got some new CPI data. What did it say? Well, I, I think uh, it, it said some things, Dylan, that I think put the market in a pretty good mood. You know, it was uh, if you look at the CPI data, unchanged month to month, and up only three point two percent year over year. A lot of that has to do with fuel prices coming down. If you strip out fuel, uh, strip out food, those volatile parts of the uh, of the index, uh, the month to month change was zero point two percent. The annual change was four percent. That four percent annual change was the lowest in two years, going back to even before the Fed started raising rates. By the way, and if you step back and look at the beginning of this year coming in, CPI was six point four percent in January, and so now that's been basically cut in half. So that's the inflation story Dylan if you, if you go back two weeks ago back to the employment report you know the BLS came out reported 150,000 job gains in October that was one of the lowest readings this year but what the BLS also did it was it revised down August and September by a combined 110,000 jobs um, plus the unemployment rate ticked up to 3.9 percent so you put those two forces together this CPI this more benign CPI data with the the lower and decreasing job gains that we've seen and the reductions, I think the market likes the direction here. I think the Fed does as well.
0: Yeah, we pay attention to these two things because the Fed's mandate, of course, is to promote effectively the goals of maximum employment, stable prices, and moderate long-term interest rates. I'm quoting directly here,
3: Matt. Let's bring it around to what it means for the rate picture. Right. Well, and they're they're getting both those things. So I think the Fed, I think the Fed is done, and I think the market is finally convinced of that as well. And you don't have to take my word for it. If you look at the CME's Fed Watch tool. One month ago, just one month ago, there was a 33% chance of a Fed rate hike in December. Today, that number is 0.2%, so <laughs> virtually zero. Uh, and In fact, if you look forward, if you look out a few months, there's a 33% chance of a Fed rate cut at the March meeting. Now, that might be wishful thinking, uh, but the probability is certainly there. So. We have a market that really believes that the Fed's done, and not only is the Fed done raising rates, there at least some likelihood of cuts that we get into the new year. So, I think that's kind of a game changer for stocks. I mean, I mean, especially small cap stocks, especially the more rate sensitive areas of the market, like real estate, for example, and those parts of the market have really been on fire this week.
0: Jason, I'm going to sound a little bit like kids in the backseat maybe going to a <laughs> Thanksgiving dinner here. Are
2: we there yet? Do you agree with Matt? Are we there yet? I, I, that's a good question. I mean, it, it's it's really amazing to, you witness the power of of one-tenth of a percentage point here, <laughs> right? In the PPI, the CPI numbers, I mean, that really was all it took. I mean, you remember the morning pre-market, That was not a very good morning, and then these numbers start coming out. 0.1% uh, you know, just percent makes all the difference in the world. Are we there yet? I don't know. I feel like we probably are. There's a wild card out there somewhere. I mean, who knows maybe we see something in January or February that indicates that maybe we aren't quite there yet. i I, I would not take it off the table that there is room for at least one more small hike. I'm hoping we're there yet. I'm not smart enough to know for sure, but it really does feel like we're starting to see the actions that the Fed has taken bring material results, right? I mean, this is what we've been looking for, and you know, one thing when we're looking through all of these earnings calls, particularly with a week like this one that was so retail heavy, you've got. Companies like Walmart, I mean, a big theme of the call being de- deflation, right? We saw in Home Depot, again, we're seeing those inflation numbers like lumber inflation coming down significantly. So, there are signs that it's working. I think just, there's still some things we need to see flow through the financials, namely, uh, you know, these student loan payments. I think that's going to be something we learn a little bit more about in the first quarter of 2024. Uh, but, but we're certainly almost there, if not there already. You mentioned a
0: couple of companies there. Let's dig into some of the results. We got some earnings results from Target and Walmart this week. CPI gives us what's going on price wise, but I think we get some color on what's actually happening and what management teams are seeing in terms of trends. Jason, you looked at the results from Target. What did you see?
2: Yeah, I mean, this it's not like they lit the quarter on fire. But I mean, so it's not like they're out of the woods by any means, but it was definitely a step in the right direction. And you're sort of seeing a tale of two businesses here. Difficulty still on the top line, but they're doing a good job of still at least bringing it down to the bottom line. Definitely signs in there, the consumer is still pinched. They had a strong back-to-school season, which helped the cause, and they are doing a good job of becoming more efficient. But again, to that top line, comp sales down 4.9%. Now, that was in line with expectations. And if you look at the drivers of those comps, traffic was down 4.1%. And that was also combined with a 0.8% decrease in the average ticket. But you bring that all down to the bottom line, I mean, $2.10 in earnings per share, that was 36%, up 36% from a year ago. And a lot of the benefit there was lower freight costs. In disciplined inventory management, and they're just being more efficient when it comes to things like automation and whatnot. Generally speaking, I mean, it was a good quarter. They've got inventory in a good place, 14% lower than it was a year ago, with the discretionary category down actually 19%, which is important because discretionary is where they've been seeing some of their headwinds, the S word, right? Shrink. Shrink is still a problem. It's going to come up. (laughs) It's going to come up. It came up for Target here. They're still working on that. One thing to note, they didn't repurchase any shares. Given where the stock price has been, you'd love to see a company maybe try to take advantage of that. But the thing is with Target, they are just not their balance sheet doesn't put them in a position of strength to do that right now. So just just something to keep in mind.
0: Matt, you looked at results from Walmart and it's interesting because in Target's case we saw some struggles on the top line and a really positive market reaction.
3: Not exactly what happened with Walmart. No, no mention of shrink on Walmart's <laughs> call, really. And there was nothing shrinking about their Walmart's results. This was a solid quarter. I mean total revenue up five percent. Uh, comparable st- uh, store sales up 4.9% and it wasn't just a pricing story we've seen that a lot this was a lot uh, this was both transactions and average customer ticket uh, they were both higher in the quarter uh, Walmart's e-commerce business business was up 24% gross margin was higher inventories were down 5% across Walmart's US stores that was a story about a year ago and Walmart raised guidance for both uh, sales and adjusted earnings per share for the full year so Put all this together and as a you know as a Walmart shareholder, I'm not, but you would have expected a positive reaction in the market. Instead, Walmart's share price was down eight percent, where I think targets was up what, Twelve percent, fifteen percent. It was unbelievable. And I think what happened was you probably uh, Walmart's the stock has held up better. And you can also point to comments by, by uh, especially by CFO John Rainey on the conference call. Uh, they mentioned they did see a softening in the consumer spending, kind of in the back half of October. They did mention that customers seemed slightly more cautious. And then there was the thing that JMO mentioned, kind of at the top of the show, which is this deflation, uh, you know, a word that we haven't heard a lot of, but that was mentioned a few times on the call. They're seeing lower prices in certain categories. If prices come down and operating expenses don't come down uh, in congruence with those, You can expect Walmart's revenue will also drop at some point, or their earnings will drop. So, that that could have been a concern.
0: Yeah, I think we're looking at something that maybe is good news for consumers with the idea of deflationary grocery prices. Uh, Maybe not as good for Walmart, given that's where a huge chunk of their top line comes from. Looking at these two earnings reports together, I think one thing that jumped out to me, Jason, was looking at the inventory for Target and some of the comments from management. They talked a lot about providing value, focusing on lower-priced products, getting into that sub-20, sub. $25 dollar price category. Do you feel like we're going to see a lot of retailers focus on this just because
2: we have these pinched consumers? No question. I noted the same thing in that Target call, especially with the, with the seasons here, right? Thanksgiving, Christmas, everything else. They're really focusing on you know, the decorations, the gifts, the food, the beverage, and all that stuff, trying to keep costs as low as they can for consumers. And yet, to that point on deflation, it's, it's a fascinating thing to think about. You're like, deflation, yay, we're there! Well, OK, that's good for consumers. Yes, prices <laughs> right. are coming down. Businesses have to, have to Battle with that, right? You're going to see that impact that gross margin line as those costs, as those prices start coming down. So then they have to be better about bringing more efficiency down to the bottom line. So for investors, you know, it's kind of a wait and see approach there. Is this something that the business is going to be able to handle well? And I think that kind of boils down to where size matters, right? And I come back to when you look at these two companies together, with Walmart raising guidance, Target basically reiterating the guidance they said. If you look at the where these shares are valued today, you look at Target, assuming the midpoint of their guidance, these shares are trading around 16 times full year estimates today. That's after the market's positive reception. You look at Walmart with their guidance; those shares are valued today at 24 times full year estimates. That's a very big discrepancy there, and it just it's it's telling you how the market views these two companies. One one maybe isn't quite as. Uh, Strong as the other, perhaps. Alright, we've got more retail chatter coming up after the break. Stay right here. This is Motley Full Money.
4: Ricky Malvey with Motley Full Money here to tell you about a vehicle that is redefining sporting luxury, the Range Rover Sport. The first thing I noticed when I sat down in the driver's seat is that I felt like I was in a cockpit. You're up off the ground in a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. I also really appreciated the overhead 360-degree camera view that let me know exactly where I was going as I was backing out of the parking space. I went for a drive in the Range Rover Sport out in Littleton, Colorado and tested the accelerator just a little bit and felt the performance and agility. It's an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and effortless composure. To put it plainly, the Range Rover Sport is powerful. It's also quiet and comfortable. Advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable yet. I'd like to invite you to visit LandRoverUSA.com to learn more about the Range Rover Sport.
0: Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Dylan Lewis, joined in studio by Jason Moser and Matt Argersinger. Gentlemen, we were talking retail earlier and we're going to pick that up and talk through Home Depot's results. Matt, this is a fun one because it's a look at consumer spend, but it is also a business that is kind of at the whims of interest rates, housing, and so many other pieces of
3: the macro picture. Right. Yeah, this and this is what this is why the stock market is so hard, guys, because, you know, Walmart, as we talked about, Decent sales growth, decent comps, higher margins, raised guidance. That stock fell 6%. (laughs) Home Depot basically did the opposite. Lower sales, lower comps, lower margins. Yeah, that stock price was up about 6%. But so. it was
2: within expectations, With, right? Okay, they they sure. hit their expectations. All right. No surprise. Give, give
3: them that, sure. But no, <laughs> net sales down 3%. I mentioned comp sales being down every month of the quarter. Uh, customer transactions were down 2.4%. They're lucky that they've had a little better pricing uh, you know, lately, but customer transactions down, volumes are down. Management talked about um, some key big-ticket purchases uh, of $1,000 or more for things like lumber that uh, JMO was getting at, um, copper piping, flooring, kitchen countertop. Counter- counter- Countertops. So these big ticket purchases were down five percent. So it seems like homeowners, in this you know I don't know uh, stagnant housing market, I guess we're dealing with, uh, they're, they're focusing a lot more on smaller projects. I thought it was interesting that management mentioned the Fed's higher for longer interest rate stance four times on the call, saying that's been a real impediment to consumer spending. And you know, kind of just the fact that Home Depot's results came out the same day we we had this benign CPI report, and everyone sort of said the Fed is done. Maybe that's why everyone suddenly got enthusiastic about Home Depot's results, even though they weren't that great. One of the things that jumped out to me, speaking of management commentary here, is we had
0: CFO Richard McPhail talking about how 2023 was a year of moderation for this business. And I think with some of the things you were just mentioning there, Matt, we see that. We see some, you know, adjustments on expectations, people settling in a little bit to the post-pandemic boom. Jason, when you look at this business, do you think year of moderation feels like an appropriate way to look at the past year?
2: I feel like it does. I mean, we're seeing a lot of businesses kind of hit the reset button and get back to just comping on 2019, right? <laughs> you know, I think with Home Depot, the neat part about this business, I think we all tend to think of Home Depot from the perspective of the DIY right I'm going in there to go get something to do a project there's a pro side of this business too that just continues to really really impress and in pro outperform DIY for the quarter although I will say and I think this kind of speaks to maybe what what we could see with with sort of economic conditions coming down the pipe here is that you know while while pro backlogs uh, are still performing well they're lower. Than they were last year, and so you do have to start wondering: Is spending start starting to tighten up? How long will it take for that to flow through those financials? It makes a lot of sense, kind of given in this higher rate environment, that, that uh, it would be a little bit more uh, a little bit more of a crimped backlog there. But then, when you look at the overall market opportunity that comes with that pro business. I mean, this is this is something they're really focused on. I mean, this is one of their high-priority growth areas here. It represents, in the call they claim, a $475 billion market opportunity all in. Now, obviously, that's not their total addressable market, right? We're going to talk about a serviceable addressable market. But for a business that's doing around $150 billion in total revenue every year, you can see it's not just the DIY. There's the pro side of it, too. And I think that's a really exciting part of the story.
0: All right, we are going to switch gears from retail to one of the most venerated investors out there. We got an updated look at what's in Warren Buffett's portfolio, thanks to our regularly scheduled 13F filings. And with that update, we saw uh, some moves and some changes, Jason, in in this portfolio. Some eliminated stakes in some big companies like General Motors and Johnson and Johnson, and an update on just how concentrated this portfolio is on the stock side for Warren Buffett.
2: Buffett's really going back to what he knows. he likes, right? I mean, what, the largest holdings? Apple, Bank of America, American Express, Coca-Cola, Chevron, a couple of those really long-time holdings. Uh, the other ones a little bit more recent, but I tell you, it really stands out how big of a position they hold in Apple, right? For a guy who felt like tech was not in his circle, I mean, that that's that's a statement. 150 billion plus? That's just, you know, just pocket change for him, right? I think it's fascinating just to look at this from the perspective of Buffett as a net seller. And if you go beyond just the holdings that he has, I mean, we see that he's actually selling more this year than he's buying. He's a net seller of stocks this year. And people would—they might look at that and say, "Well, why? Isn't this just a market filled with opportunities?" And yeah, it is. But you know what? Some of those opportunities are outside of the actual stock market and in other areas like fixed income. If you look at what he's been doing in regard to T-bills, he added twenty-nine billion more dollars to his T-bill position in the quarter, bringing the total investment to over one hundred and twenty-six billion. Dollars just in those in those in, in those T bills and and so you know that's short term risk management right I mean these rates where they are you get five percent virtually risk free he knows that's not going to last forever and it's probably not going to come around maybe for the rest of his life so he's taking advantage of it while he can
0: quick uh, quick census here in the
3: room net buyers net sellers of stock over the course of the year Jason I'm Matt a, I'm a net buyer always a net buyer year to year yeah I'll say I want to say one more thing about Buffett's concentration and I love that and I think. Buffett is a true practitioner of letting your winners run. It's really hard to do when you're an investor over many, many years. And so, but I think a lot of us say maybe the average person that, you know that we talk to has a 25 stock portfolio and it's probably going to have relatively equal weights of that. But how many of us hold those 25 stocks long enough to where the winners of that portfolio end up being? you know 60% of the portfolio like the top 5 and, that, and that's generally what happens if you hold on to your winners and i think buffett's done a great job of that i mean apple's been such an incredible stock for him and it's, it's not surprising to me that it's grown to that proportion because he's bought bought more held and that's exactly what should happen if you hold a winner it's amazing to me because it's also a relatively new position for buffett it, in it, the it,
0: grand yeah. scheme of his portfolio for it to be as
3: big as it is absolutely absolutely you would expect things like uh you know how could it trump something like coca-cola which he's held for i don't know 30 plus years or American Express, he's held for like 50 years, but no, but it just it just shows you that uh, you know him, him buying that stock when he did, and it, it's been a multi-bagger since, and he's added he's added to it over time. It, it really can build.
2: I think it speaks to something that we like to talk about here, too. I mean, it's something I, I think every investor will have to keep in mind. I say this all the time: it's investing is it's as easy or as difficult as you want to make it. And I mean, you look at those those holdings, right? Apple, Bank of America, American Express, Coca Cola, Chevron. Not the most difficult businesses in the world to understand, right? Just not like some newfangled SaaS business. <laughs> They've been here for a while, and I think they're going to be here for a while. <laughs> They've been here exactly. for a while, but he recognized strong businesses with reasonable competitive advantages and markets that were durable and lasting. You let the time do the heavy lifting for you. It's It's difficult in the moment to realize the value in that lesson, but the older you get, the longer you let those positions run, it just becomes more apparent. All right. But what's the mystery stock? That's what I want to know. What is the mystery? what is the mystery? Stuff? I know. Well, you know, it's it's
3: he does this now and then. A lot of big investors will do this now, and they'll ask the SEC to to so they don't have to disclose every new purchase. And he usually does this when he's building a position in something. So I don't know. I think that's going to be fascinating. Maybe next thirteen, I have to figure out what that could be. Well, I mean, we're going to have a topic for a radio show here in the future, no doubt. Yeah, we'll talk about it in about three months.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think I think we can schedule Put that one. that on the calendar. <laughs> we took a lot of good lessons from that. I think one thing just to note is maybe not every investor needs to follow him into the concentration of Apple. Does that feel fair?
2: I think that's fair. <laughs> I think that's fair. We 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 certainly promote diversification. That matters a lot. He he's got a little bit of a different take on diversification, right? He's like, hey, if you don't know what you're doing, then, then maybe it's for you. But he clearly thinks he knows.
3: You don't have a fifty percent position? I don't uh, think your- so. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe my house. <laughs> oh, there you
0: go. All right, Jason Moser, Matt Argersinger. Fellas, we're gonna see you a little bit later in the show. Up next, we've got a look into the world of carbon offsets and the story of how climate work can be corrupted. back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Dylan Lewis. Here at The Motley Fool, we're all for businesses understanding their impact and making efforts to work more sustainably. And One way that a lot of companies do that is through the use of offsets. But carbon finance, the nature of offsets, and the supply chain of cash for these programs is complicated. The New Yorker's Heidi Blake recently published an investigative piece, The Great Cash for Carbon Hustle, profiling the world of offsets. Motley Fool Money's Ricky Mulvey spoke with her about a forest preservation project in Zimbabwe that shows how incentives can get in the way of the environmental and financial impact these offsets are intended to bring. Heidi, to set the table, I'm still a little confused about this. What exactly is a carbon credit?
5: So a carbon credit is an instrument that you can buy which represents one tonne of carbon that has been removed from the atmosphere or that has been prevented from being released into the atmosphere in in the first place. And the idea is that for, for companies or for individuals or for governments who are struggling to reduce their own emissions, you can go pay somebody else to do that for you. So if you want to carry on driving around in your Porsche or flying internationally around the world, um, you can carry on doing that, and you can pay someone to go and protect a forest somewhere in the Global South, or maybe to go capture some methane or some other greenhouse gas um, and, and pull it out of the atmosphere. And the idea is that you're kind of atoning for your climate sins in doing so.
4: Well, and it also kind of plays on this idea that that you write about, which is that it, it assumes that carbon is a fungible commodity, which perhaps it, it may not be. It's it's not exactly like adding water into a pot that you've taken out somewhere else.
5: Right. That's that's exactly it. I mean it kind of arises from this idea that because the atmosphere is a global commons, if you pollute in the United States, you can pay somebody in Zimbabwe, say, uh, in the case of the scheme I wrote about, to take that carbon out of the atmosphere. The difficulty with it is that it's very difficult to be that specific about how much carbon has really been sequestered or avoided um, by, by many of these schemes. And so, what you have is um, a, a lot of brands paying a lot of money for carbon offsets. And actually, when you, when you look under the hood, it turns out that very little climate impact was really achieved as a result of that. And those brands went ahead and continued emitting uh, greenhouse gases on the basis that they thought those uh, emissions were being offset, when actually really often uh, that, that wasn't the case.
4: Yeah. Brands including Porsche, Netflix, big ones going, going for this, this title. The company at the center of this is called South Pole. You have a chief executive, Renat Huberger, and it's the leading carbon credit sales firm. And they, they sort of have this savvy move. They've gone from government sales of these carbon credits to private companies, to the voluntary market. And there's a board member that, that you quote, describing him as sort of a little emperor uh, what makes Huberger a little emperor?
5: Bernard Huberger, he's a very charismatic and driven individual, and he's clearly incredibly passionate about what he does. Um, he started out as a truly committed environmentalist. Like, as a kid, he talked to me about how he, he grew up sticking protest flyers to car windows to to protest their pollution. And at university, he and a group of friends became very interested in the idea of of carbon offsetting. Um, And they established this company, South Pole, initially to sell credits under the UN system that was established by the Kyoto Protocol. Um, That was kind of really the first global carbon trading framework. Um, And they, they sold credits through that system for the first sort of six years or so of the company's life. And then that system really fell apart for a variety of reasons including the, the sort of failure of, of Kyoto and that most of the countries who signed up to it to meet their emissions reductions targets. And so, South Pole pivoted and started instead offering credits under what's known as the voluntary carbon market, which exists to sell credits to, to brands or to individuals who want to try to reduce their emissions or to offset their emissions for reasons of ethics or often public relations. Um, This is something often uh, talked about in terms of greenwashing these days, companies that don't really want to do the very difficult work of decarbonising their own supply chain, their own operations, um, but find it much easier and actually cheaper to pay somebody else to go plant a tree um, or protect a forest without often without doing very much due diligence about really whether those trees are in fact being protected um, and you know the the actual impact on the ground of, of the offsets they're funding.
4: Yeah, I think one underlying theme of your story is that billionaires will pay lots of money to make headaches go away. Another center of your story is this, this uh, Kariba project in Zimbabwe. What is the promise of this specific project that, that companies are, are buying into?
5: So, the Kariba project was uh, established around 2011 uh, as a partnership between South Pole and this white Zimbabwean tycoon named Steve Wenzel, whose background was not in, in forest preservation at all, uh, but in offshore finance and, uh, and gold mining investments. He had acquired a parcel of land in Zimbabwe from a debtor who'd failed to repay a loan and had figured that maybe he could make some money through carbon offsetting because it was uh, an area of forest land. And so, he contacted South Pole. And South Pole had advised that it would be possible to sell offsets from that land on the basis that if they could, if they could persuade local people who inhabited the forest uh, surrounding this piece of land to stop cutting down the trees for, for subsistence farming um, and instead to turn to more sustainable forms of agriculture, then they would be able to sell carbon credits based on the number of trees they managed to protect. And so in order to do that, they had to prove uh, or at least try to demonstrate that those trees would all have been cut down if it weren't for the interventions that they were proposing to make. And that's a really tough thing to do. And this is one of the kind of fundamental problems with forest based carbon offsetting. It requires you to prove this counterfactual, which is without us, all of these trees would be gone. But that was the basis on which they sold around $100 million worth of credits ultimately to huge brands like Volkswagen, Nestle, Porsche, Delta Airlines. In those brands, many of those brands, used credits from this Kariba project to market their, their services and the, the goods that they sold as carbon neutral. Um, and actually, when, when I started to dig into that project, you know, it quickly became clear that all was very much not as it seemed
4: yeah, so I, I think this might be a long answer. So you have this character, Steve Wenzel, who's this uh, tycoon in Zimbabwe, even a trophy hunter as, as you mentioned. And you have a big company, you have Volkswagen buying a carbon credit over over here in this in, in maybe even a secondary market. And then you have farmers in Zimbabwe who are supposed to be accepting that money in order to protect the forest. Talk to me about the supply chain of that cash from that company buying the credit to the farmer in Zimbabwe.
5: Yeah, that was it. So, it's, it's certainly a, a long and entangled process. Um, and so, what was supposed to happen under this project was that South Pole would sell the credits that they were buying from Steve Wenzel, and they would sell them for a 25% commission to brands like Nestle and Volkswagen. And then the rest of the money would go to Steve Wenzel. Um, and Steve Wenzel was supposed to share 70% of his proceeds with the local community and invest it in the project, and then he could take a 30% cut. That was the very much the deal that was sold to the local population, and this was the way that this, this process was described to clients. Actually, that wasn't really quite what happened at all. Um, various, various things went awry in that process, one of which was that South Pole actually decided to, to go around their commission arrangement and start buying credits directly from the project during a period when prices were very low. They bought millions of credits at 50 cents per tonne and then later were able to sell them for up to $15 a tonne. And so, they made huge margins, way in excess of the 25% they were supposed to be making. And that money all stayed in Zurich, where the company is headquartered and didn't make it to the people of Zimbabwe. But also, there were then major problems about what Steve Wenzel did with the money he was supposed to be sharing. So, So, I spoke at length with a whistleblower from inside South Pole who had actually um, performed some due diligence on Steve Wenzel's company while he was working for South Pole as head of corporate investments. Um, And he had raised a red flag in in 2022, uh, warning the chief executive of South Pole and other senior figures that of around 40 million dollars that had been sent to steve wenzel by south pole and you know most of which was supposed to be being shared with the population wenzel could actually only account for 6 million dollars worth of spending on the project the rest of the money just seemed to have vanished and although this whistleblower raised these concerns internally at South Pole. South Pole decided to brush all of that under the rug. They sidelined the whistleblower. They continued their partnership with the project. When I spoke to Wenzel myself, he admitted to me that he had deliberately made sure there was no paper trail um, to document where that money had gone, that he had moved all of those funds untraceably through an incredibly opaque offshore network. He told me he would wire the money from the account where it was paid in, in Guernsey, uh, through a network of offshore funds in the Seychelles, Russia, Mauritius and other countries and then he would be arranged to be paid in cash in Zimbabwe and would distribute the funds to the project that way. He admitted to me openly that this was illegal but had been overlooked by the authorities and he told me that he thought that probably if I published that uh, he would go to jail. So it was a a pretty eyebrow-raising interview uh, with with Wenzel. Um, and, you know, I was fairly astonished that South Pole had done so little to keep any kind of audit trail over where the money was going and um, that its clients were paying ostensibly to offset their emissions.
4: Maybe it's not fair to have you guess about this, but you have breakfast with Steve Wenzel in, in London. As you mentioned, he's, he admits that he is Essentially, committing international fi- financial crimes, which I would not suggest—you don't want to do that on the record with a New York with an investigative journalist. That's that's generally a bad idea. <laughs> I, I guess. Can you talk to me about the tone of the meeting? Was it Was it an untouchable swagger? Was it a sense of guilt? What was going on when he's when he's admitting this to you?
5: I first reached out to Wenzel a couple of months before that meeting, and we'd had. A couple of very long conversations about the finances of the Kariba project. We'd really talked in great detail about it. And initially, he'd sort of maintained that, you know, he, he all the money had gone where it should. And he'd sort of, but in trying to account for, for the way the money had been spent, he kept reaching for this calculator and punching the keys and then giving up and pushing it away and kind of coming up with contradictory figures. And, um, and the more I sort of, you know, probed him gently on what had really gone on here and why had it been so difficult to account for this money the more he began to talk to me about how difficult it was to do business in Zimbabwe. You know, the kind of economic curb turbulence that he was um, confronted with, how how precarious it was to bank there, how difficult it was given that he had chosen to bank offshore, then to transfer funds into a sanctioned country. Um, and he ultimately sort of opened up about the fact that he felt this was the only way that it was viable really to have done you know, done business there. Um, I mean, many others disagree and feel that there are sort of uh, above board and transparent ways to um, finance projects of those kinds in Zimbabwe. But his view was that people from the outside did not understand how complicated a country it was, that European or American people just couldn't possibly appreciate the difficulties he'd faced. And so, he talked about it kind of in, in those terms and and just became more and more candid, really. And I think he does genuinely have this view that he did way more than anybody else would have done for that forest and for those people and albeit maybe it wasn't perfect and you know maybe he can't account for all of the money um he feels that the outside world shouldn't criticize and don't really understand um and so yeah there was a sense i think that he just he felt people didn't get it and he kind of i think there was a relief in explaining himself
4: i think there's a connection between uh, your story in sort of the alf- effective altruism movement that's been highlighted by uh, the Sam Bankman-Fried story, which is, uh, there's an idea that we just, if, if we can spend as much money as possible, we'll have the greatest impact. And that that's the best way of accomplishing climate goals. That's the best way of fixing large problems. But I think what, what comes to be true again and again and again is that, in fact, that creates more problems and you need to have more direct involvement, even if it seems smaller on a spreadsheet.
5: I think that's right, yeah, and I think I think for many people who feel that kind of unbridled capitalism is is in fact to blame for the climate crisis, there's a really painful irony in the idea of using what are known as market-based solutions um, to try to solve it, um, because. The sort of logic of the market is, for example, that that it's a great idea to have lots of secondary trading of carbon credits, that rather than having just kind of bilateral deals being done between a, a carbon project developer and, and a brand that wants to offset emissions, that you should be able to trade those credits multiple times on an open marketplace with the same kind of speed and ease as any other financial instrument. Um, and the idea is that that should facilitate financing to these projects. But actually, what that means in practice is that huge proportions of the money being spent on carbon offsetting actually goes into the pockets of wealthy intermediaries, uh, mostly in the global north, and doesn't actually make it to the projects on the ground. And. And so, yeah, the idea of using these kinds of market-based mechanisms to drive huge amounts of money is complicated because while the marketplace might grow in size exponentially, that doesn't actually mean that the amount of finance that's getting to the project is going to get any bigger. It might just mean that these credits are being traded multiple times, and the margins are increasing, and they're becoming more valuable without that money trickling down to the the climate action projects that it's supposed to be funding.
0: Heidi Blake's story, the cash for carbon hustle, is out and can be found on the New Yorker's website. If you're listening to this week's radio show as a podcast, we'll put it in the episode description. Coming up after the break, Jason Moser and Matt Argersinger return with a couple stocks on their radar. Stay right here, you're listening to Motley Fool Money. the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. I'm Dylan Lewis, joined again by Jason Moser and Matt Argersinger. We're going to get to our radar stocks for the week in a minute. But first, we got to talk a little Taylor Swift. <laughs> she has been the entertainer and maybe the business person of the year. Uh, and while the Eras tour is over, the economy of Taylor Swift just continues to evolve. The movie is out in theaters, and apparently, one company is working with Royal Caribbean to set up an Eras cruise. Jason, the holiday season's coming up. Is there anyone that you think might be a good gift recipient? Of Eras
2: cruise tickets. Oh, I feel like this is just the perfect opportunity. We should really have a guest star for this week. I mean, because Matt Greer, of course, an unabashed T Swizzle fan. <laughs> I feel like so this cool. would be the stocking stuffer that would just make his twenty twenty four. I'd love to get his feedback on this because, you know, whenever you're putting someone's name next to the economy of. You know you're doing something well, a
0: hundred percent. Yeah, I mean she is a a roaming city basically with <laughs> her with her tour, yep. and and the business impact has been absolutely incredible. Matt, I think it's one of those things that
3: she's in uh, rare air with what she's able absolutely. To do. I mean, I, there was a report from the Washington Post a month ago that the Eras tour alone is going to bring her four point one billion dollars. That's more than the economic output of forty two countries, Dylan. I, it's un it's incredible.
2: So you're guys, saying
3: that she could basically solve all the world's problems. I, I think she could. Yeah us all your money, Taylor. Thanks.
0: Yeah, she can can find it in song. I'll go on the cruise. (laughs) All right, let's get over to stocks on our radar. Our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd, is going to hit you with a question. Jason, you're up first. What are you looking at this
3: week?
2: Well, Dan, this is a bit more of a Ron Gross-style business, so buckle your seatbelt. It's uh, Rockwell Automation, ticker is ROK. Rockwell provides industrial automation and digital transformation solutions to companies around the world via their hardware, software, and services and expertise. Ultimately, helping their customers bring their businesses into the technological age. Uh, the biggest part of the business is their Intelligent Devices segment. That includes things like drives, motion safety, sensing, industrial components, other configured-to-order products. and It's supported by a very strong suite of software and services that help that margin picture as well. The neat thing about the business, in all honesty, they do benefit from multiple growing tailwinds in areas like 5G, artificial intelligence, machine learning, um, Internet of Things, and more. In leadership, they view their their market opportunity at about hundred billion dollars, and with a company that just recorded nine billion dollars in revenue over the last twelve months, it feels like there's still some some opportunity out there. And a company that continues to repurchase shares opportunistically got a one point eight percent dividend yield. So it's one of those companies. The longer you own it, the more it makes sense. But it's one that I'm going to continue to learn more about.
0: Dan, not a company I was familiar with, but I'm pretty sold just based on the ticker, ROCK. Pretty spot on there. What's your question
1: for uh, Jason? Not really a question, more of a comment. This is one of the things I love most about being on this show, is that there's these amazing companies. That are out there that I've never heard of, right? And this one's been around since like 1903. They're killing it. They're expanding. They have a ton of leverage in their market. It's fantastic. So, Jason, thanks for bringing this one out. Well,
2: you're welcome, Dan. I tell you, it was really hard to get through because all I could think about was your story of Rocklands barbecue that you were telling us before we started (laughs) taping today. That just sounded like a really delicious Thanksgiving dish you enjoyed.
3: Best
1: barbecue in Alexandria, for
3: sure. Shout out, local plug. All right, Matt, what is on your radar this week? Well, boys, the weather's getting cold, and I know. Uh, I don't think uh, Dan is a big skier but I'm getting ex- excited about h- hitting the slopes this winter and uh, so I'm looking at Vail resorts ticker MTN you know last year was literally the perfect storm for mountain uh, Vail's business there was too much snow on the west coast too little snow on the east coast and like some major flight cancellations so they had a really kind of a rough 2022 2023 ski season though I'll say my family loved our trip to park city but nevertheless uh, they still for the full year had revenue uh, climb more than 14% Oper- operating province held up nicely and going into this season sales for its epic pass were up 7% uh, they raised their dividend 8% bought back a lot of stock i think this season's going to be much better for them and if that's the case they're positioned to do really really well and i like the stock where it's trading Dan, I know you're more of an Apre ski guy
1: than a slopes guy, but question
0: or comment about Vail?
1: I mean, I don't know what that means, Dylan, but <laughs> one thing, Maddie, I'm concerned about the volatility of this stock. You look at the past couple of years, it's been up and
3: down with some pretty big peaks and valleys. Very, very much so, Dan. But what's not volatile is epic past sales, which just continue to trend higher over time. It's a beautiful Ooh. business. All right, Dan, which one is going on your
1: watch list? As much as I'd like to, Maddie. I'm sorry, but Jason's Rockwell Automation gets the nod this time around. Respect for the new name. Matt, Jason, thanks for being here. Dan, thanks, thanks. for
0: weighing in. That's going to do it for this week's Motleyful Money Radio Show show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time.